Welcome to Bright Spot, a podcast about the best practices for parents and clinicians who support teenagers going through mental health challenges while trying to manage school. Your hosts are Chris Schutzer, a school-based clinician in Massachusetts, and Lindsay Yamaguchi, also a school-based clinician in Massachusetts. In a dark time, we're here to help you find a bright spot. This podcast represents the opinions of the hosts and guests to the show Bright Spot. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only, and because each person is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Privacy is of utmost importance to us. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. If you or your child is in a crisis, please call 911 or visit your nearest emergency department. If you're not in immediate danger but would like to speak with someone, you can reach the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. In this episode of Bright Spot, Chris and Lindsay interview Paul Hyrie Dermoth, the current executive director of Bright, as well as Huck White, the original director of Bright. In the episode, we discuss the founding of the team, as well as how the model came to be, its current forms, and where it might go in the future. Enjoy the show. Hi, Lindsay. Hey, Chris. How are you? I'm good. Happy Thanksgiving, a little belated. Yeah, you too. How was your Thanksgiving break? It was great. We had our usual many, many, many people in my house. It was my grandma's holiday, so it's now my holiday that I run with my family, but a lot of people can come to our house, and it's a big deal. How about your house? That's so special. Yeah. For the first time, we stayed home on Thanksgiving instead of traveling, and hosted a small group, which was wonderful. It was really nice to be home, have time, be in my own space, you know, get to do things the way I wanted to. So did you cook? I baked. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't do the cooking, which is maybe why it was so relaxing (laughs) for me. (laughs) But yes, I hope to make it a tradition to stay home and not travel. Very nice. I can tell you from having done it for a number of years, That's exactly how I like to do it. But same as the last time that you and I were here, um, I feel it's almost silly to do an introduction while I'm so excited about the fact that we have other people on our screen. Yeah, let me introduce our our fabulous guests today. So we have Paul Hyrie Dermoth from Bright, the executive director of Bright. And we have Henry Huck White from the Brookline Center. And Huck, I'm embarrassed to say this, what is now your official title at the Brookline Center? It's gotten longer, which I guess is a good sign. (laughs) It used to be clinical director, but now it's senior advisor for innovation. I love it. Yeah, I don't know what it means, but it sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm like Chris, I'm thrilled to have the chance to talk with you both. You've both been hugely influential in my career, and I owe so much to you all. And so I'd love to hear from you, Huck, first, because Huck, I met you first and you were the innovator of the Bright program, the Bright model. I'd love to hear from you first about your involvement with Bright, how you got started, what things were like in the very beginning. Well, we began at some time about two years after the first Thanksgiving. No, it wasn't not. not Sixteen twenty-three. You're the OG of Bright, but it's not that old. (laughs) (laughs) No, but you know, as I was thinking about it this morning, uh, it's actually the 20th anniversary of the founding of Bright. So because it was about 2003, but actually the real founding, I think I, I would put it 10 years earlier than that, because in my role as the uh, clinical director of the center. One of one of the fun things I did was consult at Brookline High School, and so that which meant going over once a week and meeting with their team of social workers and being kind of the psychiatrist available when crises or sometimes terrible things happened at the school to help them through those, those moments. So I really got to know the school staff well and because so often they would be telling me about 
the kids who now would be in bright, but then were in and out of hospitals and having very rough times. It was hard on the kids and it was scary for the staff, for kids who would be in the hospital because of an episode where they got very depressed and even suicidal. And they'd been hospitalized, let's say on a Thursday and everybody thought they were fine. And then on Monday or Tuesday, one of the social workers spotted the kid in the cafeteria by themselves looking just as miserable and nobody knew that they'd been discharged. So there would, there would be a scurry and a crisis and somebody would figure out how to put together a plan for the, those kids. And that was frequent. That was the norm. There really weren't re-entry processes for kids. And more and more kids were, in, were going in and out of the hospitals. As, as you know, back then, hospital lengths were a little bit longer than they are now, but they were, they were beginning to move to kids being in for less than a week often, so short that there really wasn't time for any kind of planning. And schools were really becoming the forefront, if you would, or the leading edge in terms of managing uh, kids' mental health, particularly with severe problems. So in those conversations over a period of time, we kind of dreamed, wouldn't it be great if we had a partial hospital in the school? Or wouldn't it be great if we had some kind of a plan? But mostly it was, as it often is for schools who don't have a bright program, it's very much improvising each kid one at a time, figuring out who's going to be the point person and, and manage things. Then, so that was in the 90s. And then fortunately, we kind of had this idea somewhat baked about, but we had no idea how to do it. And then in about 2003, the brand new Blue Cross Foundation of Massachusetts, which was just launched that year, put out their first program, which was called Building Bridges in Children's Mental Health. And it was like it was designed for us. It was saying, this is a time we want to have programs that involve multiple partners, not just a mental health center, but a mental health center in a school or a hospital and a community agency work together to figure out how to do children's mental health better. It was one of these times when a foundation really kind of had a great idea too. And we applied for it and fortunately got funding. So that allowed us to say, okay, let's take this vague idea we had about a program for kids who are re-entering and make it real. So that allowed us to pull together a group. The other thing the foundation did that was super smart was they said, instead of asking you to start delivering services you know, on day one, like, you know, usually you get a grant and then three months later, they expect you to get going and doing it. They said, we're going to give you a full year to get going because we know you're dealing with multiple partners. So in that year allowed us to meet with hospitals and with school staff, of course, and with mental health staff. And most important, we engaged a lot of families because there were a lot of families in the school who were pretty active members of the, the special ed advisory group. And we were able to get some of those parents involved, including Nancy Wagman, who is still on our advisory board as one of those parents. So it, and that really shaped the program. The other thing we did, which was, I gotta say in retrospect, um, so obvious, it, but it was smart, but obvious, was talking to kids because I'm a mental health person. And I said, okay, we'll have a mental health program. And it's gonna be a partial hospital in the school. And we talked to the kids and they said, you know, when I, you know, who had been through reentry and said, you know, when I go back to school, the problem isn't my depression. The problem is I've got all this homework that I haven't done and my teachers are breathing down my neck and I can't do it. And actually I'd had one or two kids who were readmitted to the hospital simply because they were overwhelmed by the amount of work they had to do. And they just had, they freaked out and got depressed again. So we really said we have to have an academic component. This is not going to just be mental health. This is going to be mental health plus an academic program. And so it was really years of, of wishing and a year of planning that we actually launched the program in, in 2003. And in many ways, the core elements of the program model haven't changed since then. I mean, I think in some ways, because there had been 10 years of thinking with not just me, but the school staff, the psychologists at the school, the social workers, a lot of the educators. It was it was born of a, a lot of really good thinking and a lot of trust. So, so I got a question. I'm just really loving hearing the story. Even though I've heard components of it before, I don't think I've ever heard it in that amount of depth before, and I appreciate it. I got a question for you, though. When did you know that it was something you needed to take on the road? Because it sounds like it was perfect for the school that you were in and the area mm -hmm. that you were in. 
How long did it take for you to say, this is something that we have to actually share with our schools? Well, I'm, I'm so glad you asked that, Chris, because actually Wellesley was one of the very first programs that took it up, as you know, Lindsay. And I think it was after about two years. Now, what happened, which was, again, a, a piece of, of good fortune, is uh, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which is a very big healthcare foundation, had a program where they were looking for great ideas that local communities had come up with. And it was called the Local Initiative Funding Partners. And basically it said community foundations, like this one in Brookline, can take a good idea and come to the foundation and they'll get a 50-50 match. And so we, we convinced the Brookline Foundation to sponsor us and we were able to in a very competitive round, become funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And that took us from that initial two-year or three-year Blue Cross grant to something that allowed us to extend it. And I think very intentionally in, the, in that Robert Wood Johnson thing was, how can we scale this idea? So we said, if it's working in Brookline, we know there are kids just the same other places. We think it would work. But, you know, frankly, we had no idea because Brookline's, you know, every town is unique, as you know. And there was this particular marriage of the center and the school that isn't true everywhere. And so we talked to folks at, at, at Wellesley a little bit. And fortunately, there were some really far-sighted people, both of, you know, of course, Adam and Lindsay, who've been at the program ever since, but also the, there was a, a family who was willing to fund it and a head of special ed who understood it and a state rep who understood it. And so there was a lot of, of really great you know, really goodwill that helped it going. And for us, it was so reassuring to see the success that they had, that it wasn't just the unique combination of people that we had in Brookline that pulled it off. It's because sometimes there is just a one-off and it was really something. And as we've come to see after number two, and then, you know, within a few years, we were up to 20, it was kids are the same everywhere. You know, I mean, the problems are, I mean, kids in poor neighborhoods, and, you know, from disadvantaged backgrounds have 20 more problems, but the problems, once you disrupt your school and you get out of that trajectory, the normal trajectory that you expect to be on, it's extraordinarily hard to get back on track unless you have programs. And that's true everywhere. And that's where I think it's been so exciting to me to see how Bright has been adapted to so many different environments and helping so many different kids from so many different backgrounds and their families managed through a very hard time. I'm grateful, Huck, for your enthusiasm for the idea to, for 10 years, be talking about something and continue to talk about it and see it happen, I think takes a special kind of person. So to gather all those people and to continue to beat that drum on behalf of kids and supporting their mental health. So thank you from all of us. And I'm curious to hear Paul, where you entered in this journey of Bright. Great. Thanks, Lindsay. Yeah. So a super quick just backfill to where Huck was. So there was one, there was two, there was 20. And then they received, this was before I had the blessing to be part of the Brookline Center, additional and a more major grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation that allowed for development of a pretty ambitious strategic plan to scale up bright and also some other funding from a foundation to do a descriptive evaluation study of bright that ultimately was published in a peer-reviewed journal and i think just those are two things under huck's leadership that really propelled things forward and when that strategic plan was created the very first step of, a, of the strategic plan was to create a director role and so I have had the blessing to be the person hired into that director role. So I started with Bright in April of 2016. And so there was Huck, there was Catherine Houle, who's been on this show before. There was another person, Jenny LaFleur, who was leading the work uh, around the evaluation project. And I came on and I remember Huck and I loving each other immediately and also having to figure out like, who was going to have the keys and drive. Like, I do remember that, Huck, right? We, there was like a, you know, I mean, Huck is the father and the innovator and the founder of Bright. 
and he was the bright director in some ways before I was as one part of this gigantic job that he had. So then all of a sudden I had the full-time job of working in bright and we sort of had to figure that out. But I was coming straight out of working in a district. Um, I had been a principal and I had um, worked at the district level. And when we first talked about bright, I didn't totally understand what it was. It was really, really different from anything we had in the district that I was coming from. And I got really excited. And I guess what I'll just say is when I was a principal in, I was in the late aughts in the early teens, I was profoundly aware of the relationship between mental health and learning for kids. And I think other principals were as well. And it was really terrifying because none of us had had any training or background in mental health. And so you could begin to see how important this was. And then on the other hand, you had no idea what to do about it. And so part of what was so compelling for me about Bright coming right out of the school is like, oh, Bright is not the whole solution around everything that schools need for mental health, but Bright is a specific powerful intervention that when done well can make a huge difference for a good proportion of the highest needs kids in schools around mental health. And that was super exciting, right? So it was this was a very concrete, specific thing. It involves a resource commitment, but when schools make that commitment, they can stand this up. So that was sort of how I came in. And then I had to try to understand it on its own terms. And then, you know, and then our job has been to both do our best to support and sustain the schools that already are implementing the Bright Intervention, and then to figure out how to respectfully and carefully grow it and spread it. So so that's what I've been doing for the last eight years. Well, Paul, if you don't mind my saying it, because I, I was here in my current school before you started, and I got to see when you took those keys, as you describe it, the vehicle. I'm not quite sure what the vehicle is. I think it might have started as a school bus, but it now might be a cruise ship. And, and a pretty decked out one at that. So you're doing a great job. But it was really amazing to see the way that your leadership took hold and just the growth that I think had already started under Huck and his leadership. It's been amazing uh, as somebody working in a school to see the ways that the Bright team impacts all schools, not just in helping develop these programs, but support people like Lindsay and me in our roles, but with data with uh, leadership around trainings, around connecting us to each other so that we're not alone, these little siloed programs. It's really magnificent. And I think you both should be tremendously proud. And what an honor and cool thing for Lindsay and I to get to do this. I want to ask you a question, though, Paul, if you don't mind, because I bet when you signed up in 2016, you did not have the crystal ball about what COVID was going to throw your way. How did Bright adapt and survive COVID? And did, did the job change? Yeah. I will just say parenthetically, I just want to prop out to both you, Lindsay and Chris, like in my first month on the job, I got to come to each of your schools with Catherine. Never forget that just to get a feel for the great work that you were each doing and what a model that was and remains. And also just the incredible contributions that each of you and your and your schools and your programs have made to the network that we're all blessed to be part of. Yeah, and then COVID hit, and those of us who were working, just doing this work in schools will remember having to pivot to fully remote within like days, right? So having, in many cases, many folks in schools never done any remote work to all of a sudden doing all of the work with kids remotely, right? And what, so, so the very first part of the adjustment to COVID was working to bring our network remote, right, in the very best way that we could, uh, along with all of the fear in so many ways that we were going through, right, you know, so sort of, so it was like, let's go remote, and then like, let's just try to support each other in getting through this terrifying time. So that was phase one, you know, the first, you know, weeks and months of the pandemic. And then there was the adjustment to like, okay, this is going to last a lot longer than we thought. Right. So then figuring out how do we support each other through that. And part of what was happening then was people were really beginning to worry about kids' mental health as well as adults' mental health through this increasingly long and dreary experience um, that that we were having. And so the second shift for us was 
lots and lots of schools asking us to do sort of whole faculty professional development about mental health. And then um, the really, really painful things around racial violence and structural racism happened. And all of that came together in that summer of 2020 when we were going into that 21, 22 fits and stops year, right? And so if all of a sudden we were all beginning to think we're all bright students now. And one of our amazing former bright colleagues in schools and then former members of our team, Lisa Winner wrote this incredibly powerful, I'll never forget it, editorial in our newsletter called We Are All Bright Students Now After She Lost Her Mother to COVID. And just remembering then about the work of helping schools think at the broad scale about coming back with mental health and equity in mind, just coming back to school. And that was all of the 21, 22 school year, right? Different schools and districts getting back to in-person on different schedules and, and, and in different ways. So figuring out how to support that. And then the final phase that continues, right, is recognizing and dealing with the multi-year aftermath of all of the damage to kids' development and mental health that the pandemic did. And that's the work that I really believe we are all in the thick of now. So what I'm hearing you say is that this narrative that I think we all hear all the time, that mental health is at an all-time biggest challenge that it's ever been for schools, for the world, you're seeing it, yes? Yeah, I think we're all seeing it, yep. That we have a child and youth mental health crisis in our country right now seems there seem to be very few things that just about everyone agrees upon. And that's one of the ones that I think just about everyone agrees upon. Yep. I just sort of wonder what sorts of things you are hearing from folks who are on the front lines at schools. If there, if there have been themes that are, yeah. are coming up. Yep. I would say at the secondary level, the themes of, anxiety as just a gigantic driver of all kinds of things, school avoidance and the really, really serious challenges around attendance. I don't think that mental health is the only driver of the huge attendance challenges we're having across the country right now, but it's certainly one of the drivers. And then for younger kids, I think just having missed these long critical developmental periods and how that is showing up in terms of the way kids are able to be or not so effectively able to be in community and I think in and in, and in school. And so, you know, all of these challenges with younger kids around is what's happening, a trauma response, is what's happening a developmental challenge, is what's happening an emerging mental health challenge, you know, sort of like those pieces, but that there are, it's just very, very hard. And I think adults just being incredibly, incredibly stressed and yeah, and, and feeling very, very internally conflicted, wanting to be there for kids and also, and also really struggling to be there for kids. Mm-hmm. So that, yes, <laughs> I, as someone who works at a high school, can definitely relate to all that you're saying. And as I hear it, it all just feels so incredibly overwhelming. Are you sort of having the overview of Bright, as a clinician, I'm just in my school sort of seeing what people are doing. But what are some creative ways that that you feel like schools and the network are starting to help students heal? I mean, I know Something I try to really keep in mind that Bright has taught me about is using therapeutic doses <laughs> with students and and really trying to be present and better understanding that, like, I might not be able to fix everything for a student, but I can look that student in the eye, ask how they are, smile, you know, that there are these little moments throughout the day that we can have these therapeutic you know, moments with kids, but what are, what are you seeing from the network? Yeah, I think two broad things. One being because there's such concern, there are also many open hearts and minds. And so to your point, Lindsay, 
nobody's trying to turn teachers into therapists, but teachers and other school staff are really concerned about kids' mental health and are open and interested in, to think, how can I be a contributor to good mental health in ways that I think, you know, may not have been the case always, you know, sort of in the past. Not that folks were against it, but it just wasn't on the mind in the same way. So I think there really is that opportunity for folks who are kind of doing the most concentrated mental health work in schools, such as yourselves, to also provide wider learning for everyone in the school setting and to try to create more broadly mental health supporting schools. So that's number one. And then I think number two, and particularly in Massachusetts, you know, we're beginning to see this real movement toward comprehensive school mental health systems, which 15 years ago, when I was a principal, if someone had said to me, you know, 15 years from now, many, if not most districts and schools will be proactively working to create systemic, comprehensive school mental health, you know, mental health systems at the school building and at the district level. I, I was like, what are you talking about? Like, it was, it was like, you know, not on the screen at all. And so like, so again, I think there's all sorts of challenges, there's workforce challenges, there's resource challenges and all of that, but there's a vision toward seeing schools as the core place for supporting kids' mental health that I think is just really powerful. And that taps right into that original vision that Huck and others built for Bright originally. Huck, I remember coming on and the Bright grant proposals and white papers where like schools are the place to be working to address mental health. So I don't know if you want to say a word or two about. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, COVID just accelerated all of that for terrible, you know, bad reasons. But, you know, I think back when we started it, most schools did not consider that they had a responsibility for kids' mental health. They did have a responsibility for special ed because that was mandated and it was a whole structure around that. And in fact, a lot of kids with mental health issues were being somewhat treated, uh, treated is maybe the wrong word, but um, cared for through the special ed program, which tended not to necessarily really be very well designed for that. But there was like a lack of understanding. I think it was stigma to the point where some principals said, we don't have mental health problems at the school. And when they happened, it was always the exceptions to the rule. I think the thing that we began is, you know, as we began bright and began to look at it from the population basis is that you can predict any year in a given school, there'll be about 5% of the kids with serious mental health problems and 10% with somewhat serious. And there's probably 20% who are going to have anxiety, depression that's going to interfere with their schooling. And that's, that's just the natural history of those problems and kids. I think what's happened with COVID is it went from 20% up to 40 or 50%. So it became, if anything, more normative. But the other side of that has been, I think maybe because it is so much in front of everybody, that I think stigma has fallen off. I think, you know, that I think it's kids and families now don't feel terrible about going to school guidance counselors and saying, my kid's anxious and my kid's depressed. That used to be completely forbidden. And I think schools recognize that alongside many other mandates and missions schools have, taking care of kids' emotional health and their well-being is a very important part of what schools are there for. And fortunately, we have you know, the bright team, as well as people like you who are inside schools with a lot of wisdom, and a lot of experience that can help guide the educators in terms of being smart, humane, practical, and uh, being able to really get kids through what is, you know, can be very difficult moments, successfully survive adolescence, even thrive in adolescence and become stronger adults as a result. So... Huck, thank you for what you just said. I mean, I thought it was really interesting and, and really smart. Um, I want to ask a, a further question, but first I need to just give a comment because I, I, I agree with you that the stigma is starting to deteriorate for, I think, a lot of school-aged families. There is a data point that troubles me, though, which is that I think kids still feel this pressure around now they know they've got mental health challenges, but they feel that they need to be in class. Um, one of the main data points that we get every time we run a school-wide survey every couple of years is that kids know how to get help. They don't feel comfortable leaving class to get the help for fear of missing something that could then ultimately lead them down a, a difficult academic path. So I hear that. And now I feel like we're in the next stage of like, okay, well now it's about balance, right? <laughs> and, and, mm. and that's an important next step. Paul, I want to throw something back to you. It's a question that I don't know that you're going to be prepared to answer. So my apologies. But do you think we're going to go through 
tiers of students based on the age that they experienced COVID with different challenges. For example, like I think we saw an uptick in the data uh, around eating disorders in the early kids that were going through high school versus the kids that maybe weren't even in uh, elementary school at that point, what we're going to see with them as they rise through the systems. Yes. And exactly how that plays out depends on what we do year to year. If we think about the cohort of kids that were in kindergarten or in, let's say, 2019, 2020, or the cohort of kids that were supposed to be in kindergarten in 2020, 2021, and, you know, in many, many cases, maybe never set foot in the school, there was like an entire developmental, critical developmental year that they didn't get to experience, right? And I hear, as we talk with folks in elementary schools, like that particular, or those two particular cohorts of kids, I think are, are, you know, and I think when done right, it will take time, just as it will take time academically to mitigate those impacts of lost developmental time. So there was lost academic time and kids are behind academically. There was lost developmental time and kids are behind developmentally. And I think things are showing up depending on what age kids were at, you know, at, at what they went through. And I think they will continue to show up. And I also think there's always the opportunity to effectively mitigate things and where that mitigation has been effective, kids are doing much better. So Chris, I don't know if that's a full answer, but that's what comes to mind for me as I, as I think about it. For thinking sort of future oriented, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about where you all see, given what we've been through and the pandemic and all the challenge, where you see Bright going in the next five, 10, you know, 20 years. I know no one has a crystal ball and you have done such an amazing job as an organization being flexible in terms of what folks need (laughs) pivoting with the pandemic. So there's that piece of it too. Uh, It can't be too rigid. You have to think about what people need, but what, what are your, this is to Huck or, or Paul, or what are your well, I, let me just say that when, when, when Paul started, he asked me, which I appreciate him asking, you know, what's, what's, what's your vision? And this was how, what year, Paul? 2016. 2016. So not too long ago. And I said, I, I, I wish to see that Bright was in every school in the Commonwealth. In fact, I'd like to see it in every school in the country, but we were in, at that point about 20 schools. So we had, you know, there were 500, I mean, I don't know, I mean, you know we had a long way to go. <clears throat> and now with some wonderful support from the legislature as well as some foundations that's within reach you know we're, ha- we're halfway there and more than halfway there and we're going in for some of the biggest schools in the commonwealth with some of the biggest problems like you know and i think we'll be in there by year's end so i think it's become universal which given what we were just talking about so incredibly important because wherever there's a bright program it means there's mental health people and educators who get kids and and understand the interplay of education and kids' emotional well-being. And those people serve as both of you do in your schools as points of light for the rest of the faculty to be able to find their way. I mean, this is all, you know, this is new for our culture to have, have resources and then to have a network that now that hundreds of people who can support each other in this field of doing this work. I mean, we've been learning every inch of the way, you know, it's not like when we started it, we didn't know, really know what we were doing. And thank goodness we had people like you came along and helped us figure it out. So um, in terms of the future, we're in several states now. And so I think those are all great beachheads in terms of, but Paul really took what was just a dream and made it real. So thank you, Paul. Oh. It's been incredible, incredible blessing. Chris and Lindsay, let me like lightning round an answer and then you can drill down on anything you like. How about that? I love it. Broadly, we're working on three things. One is bringing Bright to scale in Massachusetts, particularly initially at the high school level. The second is um, carefully growing outside of Massachusetts 
in a way that we don't get out, out over our skis, but that we're moving forward. And then the third is figuring out how much kind of consulting and professional development about some broader topics, comprehensive school mental health systems, trauma-informed practice, adult wellness and care. So, so how much of that kind of work, that's not just about the bright tier three intervention. So those are the three, bringing the bright tier three intervention to scale in Massachusetts, expanding the bright tier three intervention outside of Massachusetts, and then broader consulting and professional development. And then some of the challenges with that, I will say, we need to do a better job partnering with the largest districts. And in fact, that is so important, specifically Boston, Springfield, Worcester in Massachusetts. And that is so important. And it's so complex that we've actually recently hired a team member just to work on um, working with the largest districts. The second thing is we need to figure out what's the right model for this work in really small schools and in rural communities, in particularly like economically disadvantaged rural communities, because it's just a whole other economy of scale in the other direction. And so a big piece for us. And then we continue to work through these questions about there are elementary schools that want to implement a version of Bright and what are the right conditions for that being successful and what is the right model for as well. So those are like the kind of growing edges for us. And then I'll say the final challenge is how do we grow well as a team? How do we find people who are, have the skills and dispositions to do this work well? And then how do we really support them and grow a strong team to support schools and districts? So I'll stop there. That was my sort of lightning round, like big picture, like what's, what are we trying to do in Bright? When do you sleep, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that's it's very uh, ambitious. Uh, and I'm, um, I'm I'm asked. grateful that you're that you're leading the charge. Mm -hmm. um, go. I, I can I can chime in. I appreciated the way you handled the lightning round. One of the things I was wondering was to what degree would our last segment around COVID and this segment around the future really go hand in hand? Like how much does COVID inform it? And I think you did a nice job of walking us through that. One of the things I I really appreciate, especially at a high school level, is that these programs have an opportunity to connect kids and create communities. And one of the things that I worry about coming out of COVID as a, a challenge in bringing these things to scale, especially, and I wonder with, with the younger kids, are there opportunities to have this still be a classroom-based inter intervention in full where kids can interact with each other and learn from each other across all age groups? Is that something you're seeing, Paul? Or or Because I, I wonder to the degree that things have become a little more siloed in COVID. Yeah. I think we're seeing at the secondary level that the model is holding true and, you know, continues to be the bright space in the high school or middle school is a powerful space of community for um, kids who are sharing common challenges. The two of you are living it every day, so you may have a different opinion about that, but that would be my take. And then the, again, this question of in elementary schools, how does that model function? The, the work in elementary schools is often with some of the kids who are most dysregulated on a pretty consistent basis and really working through an arc of co-regulation in the bright space, teaching self-regulation skills in the bright space, and then working to translate those skills back to the regular classroom, both with the child and with the classroom teacher. The conditions are a little bit different and you can't put too many seriously dysregulated kids in the same space at the same time and then expect. So, so there's that component of it. And again, like it's a piece that we continue to work through and puzzle through and um, have a lot of growing to do with schools. But I do, I feel like the model and then its promise for its impact on the wider school ecosystem, I think still those powerful things that we discovered in that Bright Notes report from 2018, I think, you know, still, or, or not still, but we're beginning to see many of those things come back and that Bright can be that powerful community builder in schools. So I Lindsay, I've got my eye on the clock, but I have one more follow-up question, if that's okay. Just based on one of the things that Paul brought up here. Paul, to make those connections with Springfield, with Worcester, with Boston, and I think it actually speaks to, you know, future, like if there are connections with other big cities that aren't in Massachusetts, yep. does the size of the district being so many schools create challenges that are 
interesting to talk about now, or is it more just it's like a totally different game? I'll just try to say quickly, I think there's two conditions that are different. Even from a fairly big district that has one really big high school, there's one condition that's different, which is a district with 20 schools to say like, we're going to get bright to all of the students in the district if they need it is different from a district with one really big high school, right? Because you can, at least at the high school level, right? You can put it in at the high school and then there may be capacity issues, but it's there in the school and available to the kids who need it to the most. The other challenge though, in the really big districts is there's just a lot of levels of district administration and the superintendent is here, like very high up working at, at one level. And then there's several layers of administration and then there's the schools, right? And so that creating the conditions and getting everybody aligned to commit to Bright, that's a different condition from a district where might be at the district level, an assistant superintendent, a student services director, maybe one other coordinator, and then the school administration, where if you look at these gigantic districts with different departments and people who touch mental health in different ways actually don't even report to the same bosses and just all of that. It's fascinating and complex. Yeah, I was going to add the one thing that we did learn, which was like all learnings, both good and painful, was I thought that with these big districts, if we got into one or two schools, there would be lateral movement, just like when we got into Brookline and Wellesley, it wasn't that hard to get the other neighboring communities because they saw it and they said, gee, we weren't one of those and, and it was working. That doesn't happen in the big city schools. We get into one or two schools, one of, you know, with usually that was, that wasn't so hard. It happened in Chicago and in Seattle, but getting into the fourth, third, fourth, fifth school turned out to be, didn't happen for all the reasons Paul said, you know, with this, there, there is not necessarily the same dynamic that happens in separate communities and there's just lots of other forces and factors that go on big city schools that over which we have relatively little control it isn't like one principal or one superintendent says i like this let's go with it you know there's a million things that happen after that that may or may not um permit it to happen I can only imagine the political challenges, and I think you guys are throwing us an excellent segue here. I, Lindsay, go ahead. I can see you wanted to ask a question. Yeah, I just, um, I know we have a minute or so to wrap up, but it's clear from all you said that this is a long game, you know, the the creating this program, supporting students' mental health. What, what fills you up to keep you going? <laughs> like, how do you stay in this game um, because I'm sure there are many wins and many joys and it's hard work and slow, slow work. So, so what, what keeps you going? Yeah, I really love working in districts and schools and actually work less in districts and schools than I used to, right? When I started this job, because there's a different management piece. So one thing is when I get to be in schools and districts and particularly maybe together with another teammate and there's a chance to have a thoughtful coaching conversation and see people thinking, oh, this is how I could do it even better and then committing themselves to taking that step. So, so that I, I, you know, I really love. And then today, Catherine forwarded an email from a district that we've been talking with for six years. And they said, we're ready to implement Bright at our high school and probably at our middle school. And those moments are really, like, really, really terrific. But the heart of it is um, being part of a team in a network that is um, doing something really important and new, 20 years old and still new, you know, in districts and schools. And, and just that sense of community, I think, that we have in the network with all these people who are like dispersed all over the country and may never meet each other in person and you never and still are on the Google group, you know, like crowdsourcing and solving problems together and sharing resources and just, you know, that, that for me. And then, you know, the opportunities that do come to be in community in person with those folks, I think, um, those are the things that probably I, I find the most joy in. Yeah. You know, the thing I would add, Paul, to all of that is, and it, and it happens 
pretty often is I'll be talking to somebody and this was certainly when I was more involved in the program, you hear from a kid or a family, you know, usually a couple of years later and they say, you know, I don't know what I would have done if it wasn't for the, the, the bridge program or the bright program, because, you know, it, it got me through high school and now I'm in college and I'm doing okay. And, you know, having been there before, you know, before, you know, they wouldn't have been okay. They would have, they would have dropped out of school or they would have had to repeat that year. And, you know, and they would have gone into their, you know, late adolescence with a pretty heavy load and versus a sense of mastery, a sense of, of strength and confidence in their resiliency to be able to handle the hard things, you know, which that's, um, well said Huck, because I feel that when you have such a, a, a big conversation like this one, and how could we not? I mean, we've got the OG and we've got the current head of the organization. We, we need to ask these bigger questions, but at the heart of this, this is work with direct with kids and to lose sight of any of that would be so foolish, right? I mean, it's just, a, it's an amazing gift that we have and getting to work with these families and these kids. And I thank my lucky stars that you both have led this organization so beautifully and touched so many families, right? I don't want to lose my chance though, Lindsay. I know we booked an hour. We always aim, just so you two know, I don't mind even telling our listeners this. We always aim for a maximum of one hour because I find that's the most digestible amount that anybody can listen to anything. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, I think we have a maximum of about five minutes left. Is that is that okay with you guys? Yeah, and yeah. you can edit oh, any rambling of mine out. Nothing that yeah. you've done so far has been rambling. Uh, <laughs> but, but you know, mostly this just comes from a place of sincere interest. Paul, how much are you coordinating with organizations outside of schools? Like, are we looking at organizing with, with grants and, and foundations these days? I know you, this, this podcast really started by Huck talking about the generous gifts that were made by a number of organizations, but I'm also thinking about partnership with government and just as Bright starts to move into other states, who are you partnering with? I, just give us a, a peek behind the curtain. Yeah, let me go like lightning round on this again. Part of when Huck, you were talking, it's so true, right? I I just don't work with kids and families directly anymore. And there's a part of that that's, you know, sad. And so it, it just means we have to find joy in other places. And so, but okay, I think we probably have seven or eight active foundation funders right now. And so there's the work of cultivating, maintaining those relationships we have had to learn to engage in legislative advocacy, which is something I didn't know how to do before this job. And also we have, we do a fair amount of work together with um, state agencies, both around funding and then around policy, um, around mental health policy as well. So that's a major piece of the work. We work with lots of partners around school mental health systems development. So things like the children's mental health campaign and other sort of players, you know, across Massachusetts. We also have a super interesting partnership in greater Cleveland with the Cleveland Clinic, local school departments, the Regional Educational Service Center um, around systems development work. We're part of this amazing Thriving Minds partnership together with the Rennie Center for Educational Policy and Research and the Massachusetts School Mental Health Consortium. That's a, a professional development and kind of consultation partnership around school mental health systems and trauma-informed care. So, and then there's things like that I never thought I would have to learn about, like branding and visual identity and communications and, you know, kind of those pieces as well. So we have partners and vendors and folks that we're working with on those things. So it's like lots of those kinds of meetings that are with lovely people who are not so directly affiliated with schools or districts, to your point, Chris. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Yes, this is been wonderful to be able to have some time with you too. Thank you so much in your very busy schedules for carving out some time to talk with us. It's always a pleasure and can't wait to see what is next, you know? So thanks very much. Well, thank you. And thank both of you for really being part of this journey. You know, you both have been involved with um, Bright for a long time and it really helped us, you know, stay grounded and keep learning. So thank thank you both, because I think Bright is about the leadership, but it's very much about all of the people who are leading programs and contributing to learning how to do it better with changing and challenging times. So thank you. Yeah. 
Thank and you. one of one of my sincere hopes that might come from talking to you guys today is that if there are parents that listen to this podcast that can help with advocacy, you know, down the line, I just think it's an, an amazing opportunity to think about what goes into getting a bright program in a school. Because once you're uh, involved in one, whether it's because you're a kid who's going through the issue or a, a family member who's watching that, you know, a caregiver supporting it, you can see just how plain it is, uh, how critical the work is. And so to both of you, thank you very much. I echo Lindsay's thanks. And, and I know how busy you are. So thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, I will just say quick, I am remembering those first visits in my first month on this job. And Lindsay, it's so, and particularly for me, it's so, I remember the day I met you and I remember talking about how, you know, by that point you had been doing this work for, you know, like years and you know, the question was like, how can we elevate that expertise and how can we find ways really for both of you to, to take on leadership roles in this work? And actually, I don't think we have done that. You have done that, right? You know, like you have innovated and led in ways that I just think are so powerful. This podcast being the most recent and yet another amazing thing. So um, just, yeah, super grateful for your work with kids and families every day and then for your leadership in our network. Thank you so much. I want to like carry you two around in my pocket every day. <laughs> this is just, what a boost this has been to talk to you and wishing you the best. Happy holidays and just well, be well. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much for the gift of your time. And thank you well, everybody. Yeah. Have a good weekend. Yep. Bye bye. 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 See you soon. Bye bye. Each podcast, we end Bright Spot with 15 seconds for you, our listeners, to take a few deep breaths. It's so important, and we know that we all need to make time for it. Get comfortable. We're going to try it now. If you're driving, do not close your eyes. In just a moment, I'm going to stop speaking and go radio silent for about 15 seconds. I'll let you know when we're done. Here we go. Until next time, take care.